Hey, it is so good having you with us this weekend on the last weekend of May. You know, on the church calendar, this weekend is celebrating Pentecost Sunday, the weekend that celebrated when the church began, when the, the, the prophecy that God would pour out his spirit on men and women uh, started there on the day of Pentecost and the church was born. And so we're glad to have you with us, uh, those of you who join us every week. And I understand that this weekend that there are some around the country who are not normally a part of us uh, throughout the church of God that are joining us this weekend, and we want to welcome you as well. Uh, before we get going uh, on our sermon today, I wanted to take a moment because we were all reminded again this week of how broken our world is. And it's interesting that on the weekend that we celebrate the birth of the church where Jesus said that the church would not, even the gates of hell would prevail against it. He'd build his church, that the church would be the light of the world, the church would be the salt of the earth, that we see that our world and our earth is still filled with brokenness and heartache, injustice, division, racism, violence and oppression. And I thought maybe today before we got started, we would just join together and unify our hearts in praying not only for our country, for our world, and for the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? And Father, our hearts are heavy. As we know, you weep with those who weep. And you are there and close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. And Father, you have called us, your church, to be your representation in this world, to bring about hope, to bring about peace, to bring about forgiveness, to bring reconciliation, to bring justice, to bring love, to bring forgiveness. And we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would bring your light into this dark world and through your people, the church, that you would use us to build bridges to repair, and to answer that prayer, Lord, that you prayed so long ago, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, in our towns, in Minneapolis, in America, even as it is in heaven. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, it is good to have you with us. If, uh, again, if you're joining with us for the first time, this is the end of a series for us. So you're kind of coming in on the last scene of the movie. For the last six weeks, we have been slowly going through the 23rd Psalm, the best known and most loved Psalm of all. And we've been looking at it one verse per week. And I think I could say with Paul, as he wrote in Romans chapter 11, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his wisdom and his paths beyond tracing out. There is so much in this little psalm that we have barely scratched the surface and we could never plumb the depths of the psalm. But we've spent a week on each verse. And today as we wrap up the series, I do want to go one more week. And this sermon really only has one point which is better than having a sermon that's pointless. <laughs> so the one point is kind of a, a repeated refrain that you'll hear me say throughout, and I believe that by the end of it, you'll have it down in your head and you can repeat it with me. And the, the refrain is this, the point is this, that Psalm 23 and everything we're gonna look at today says more about the shepherd than it does about the sheep. It says more about the shepherd than it does about the sheep. 
Now, Psalm 23 was written by David. David had been a shepherd in his early years as a boy. He had shepherded sheep. And then later as the king, he had shepherded Israel and he had led them. But when he writes Psalm 23, he changes the perspective. He comes at it not as a shepherd, but as a sheep, from the perspective of a sheep. And what's interesting is that in this short six verses, he uses the personal pronouns I, me, my 17 times in six verses. So you would think that maybe it was kind of self-centered, kind of all about him, but what we'll see, as, uh, as you will hear again and again, that these five words, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, this is, who never changes the same yesterday, today, and forever, the immutable God, the shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, this is more about the shepherd than it is about the sheep. I've mentioned in this series that this picture of a shepherd and sheep is the second most common analogy, word picture, uh, usage that God has in his scripture to describe his relationship with his creation, with his people. The first one is a father and a son, but second is a shepherd and sheep. I mean, it starts from cover to cover in this scripture starts, the first time we hear it is Jacob, this old man Jacob, as he's preparing to die. Jacob, who, who himself had been a shepherd, and his boys had been shepherds. Their whole life was about being a shepherd. No doubt he had some of the same insights that David did. And as he's dying and coming to the end of his life here on this earth, he's in Egypt and he's passing on his blessing to Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And we read in Genesis these words, then he blessed Joseph and said, may the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been, here it is, been my shepherd all my life to this day. Now maybe David was aware of these words. Maybe when David says the Lord is my shepherd in all the days of my life, maybe he's stealing a little bit, plagiarizing a little bit from old Jacob. Because Jacob says, I know what it is to be a shepherd and God has been my shepherd all the days of my life and throughout scripture till you get to the very end. When John, one of the most beloved disciples of Jesus is in his 90s, he's an old man, he's, he's on this island, he's, he's exiled to this island, Patmos, and he has this vision. And in this vision he has a revelation and he sees this picture of one who is like a lamb who has been slain. And in this revelation, he says about this lamb these words. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Here it is from the beginning in Genesis all the way to Revelation that God is the shepherd. God's people have always said, the Lord is my shepherd. And the Lord is my shepherd, but the converse is true as well, that we are his sheep. Very, very familiar verse out of Psalm 100 says, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. In a less familiar passage at the end of Ezekiel 34, we read, you are my sheep, God says, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. That he is our shepherd, and we are his sheep. And it's an amazing thing, as we will see, that all of this says more about the shepherd than it does about the sheep. 
So David writes this psalm that we've been looking at, and throughout this psalm, he talks about how great it is to live under the care and the leadership of the shepherd. He just lists out all the benefits of these, the, 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 the green pastures that are so nourishing, the refreshing still waters, the right path that's being led on, the courage to walk through the difficulties with the good shepherd, the fact that he protects us, that he provides for us, he's got this table, the healing oils, the overflowing life, the goodness and mercy that follows and to be with him in his house for all of his days and then forever. He talks about all of the what it's like to be under the leadership of the shepherd. What Psalm 23 doesn't do is that it doesn't talk about the why. Why would there be this relationship? Why would there be this connection with the shepherd and the sheep and the sheep with the shepherd? And the why, the why is this loving relationship that the shepherd lovingly has a relationship with his sheep, which leads to an, a secondary why. Why would the shepherd have a loving relationship with the sheep, especially when we know about sheep and ourselves? And I think maybe even David struggled with this because in Psalm 8, he says, when I think about the heavens, the moon, and the stars that you've set in place, and then he asks why. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him, yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him with, with glory and honor. Why, God? The God of the universe, why would you even be mindful of me, this little sheep, this man who's fallen and broken? Why? We see it again with Isaiah. When in Isaiah 40, he talks about the knowledge of God that no one could ever, ever uh, tutor God. The, the power of God, the one who marks off the heavens with the span of his hands, who holds the waters in the hollow of his hands, who, who rules over the, supremely rules over the, the rulers of this world and the nations of this world. He's sovereign, he's got authority, he's got power, he's got all wisdom and knowledge. And in the midst of all of that, there's this beautiful, tender little passage in Isaiah 40 that says, oh, and he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lamb in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. What a picture of this loving relationship. And this says more about the shepherd than it does about the sheep. So today, here's what we're gonna do. For those of you who are ADD, this is your day. I'm so glad that you tuned in because we are gonna be all over the map. We're gonna look at what David said. We're gonna look at some stuff out of Ezekiel. Hello. We're gonna be in Isaiah. We're gonna see what Jesus said. We're gonna see a story that Jesus said. We're gonna throw in a little bit of Christmas. We're gonna talk about Israel. And then it's all gonna land on you. So we're gonna be all over the map. And here's my hope. My hope is that all of these different pieces, and they're from everywhere, will point to this one point that it's more about the shepherd than it is the sheep. And my hope is that at the end of it, we will understand that and our response will be this humility and gratitude and love and worship and submission to our great shepherd. So you ready? You ready? You ready? Uh, ADD people, here we go. All right, we're gonna look at this. We're gonna start circling back to one of the verses we looked at two weeks ago in verse five where it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, when we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the very positive side of God's rod and his staff, that his rod and his staff, they protect and they direct, that it's protection against the predators, against the enemies. The rod in the hand of our shepherd gives us great comfort because he's looking out for us, and it, and it directs us. Like the staff comes alongside, like a paraclete, like the Holy Spirit would come alongside and direct us. 
But what about when the rod and the staff, what about when the rod and the staff is about correction and restoration? What about when there's some discipline involved? And I want us to look at this out of a chapter of Israel's history. Israel, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Israel has this propensity, like a sheep, of wandering off, of straying off the path, of getting into a thicket, of getting lost, of getting hurt, and it happens over and over again, which, by the way, I think now's the time to pause for a dad joke. We haven't had a dad joke in a few weeks, all right? So here you go. You know why the flock of sheep all walked off the cliff? They didn't see the U-turn. All right, okay, bad joke. I'm sorry, stop rolling your eyes. Okay, back to Israel. Israel's history. They have strayed off the path. They've wandered away. They've gone away yet again. And now they've gotten to this point where they've hardened their hearts. They're engaged in injustice. Uh, they, they don't follow God's way at all. They don't care about his way at all. They're not obedient to his word. And, and they've gone off. Now, the shepherd, God, has sent them warnings. He sent prophets to them, but they've ignored those. And he's been patient. But now it's time to bring out the rod and the staff for correction and restoration, and it's not gonna be fun. This happens roughly in 605 BC when the southern kingdom, Judah, is being invaded by Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Some of you are familiar with Old Testament history or your stories from Vacation Bible School. That's when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get taken to Babylon. Also, Mordecai, who is the cousin or uncle of, of Queen Esther, he gets taken as well. Ezra and Nehemiah, they get taken as well. All the, the, most of them in their teenage years. There's another young man who's 25 years old. He gets taken as well. His name is Ezekiel. We'll come back to him. They're all taken away. And there's this deep heaviness that comes over the entire group. I mean, they have been They've been overthrown by the Babylonians. They've been taken from their homes. They are out of their, their city that they love. Their temple will be destroyed. They're away from their families. They don't know if they'll ever return. They're in a foreign land under a foreign culture, the foreign gods and pagan uh, rituals. And here they are slaves. So there's this heavy heaviness on their lives. In fact, there's even a psalm written, a psalm of lament written during this time. Psalm 137 says this. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our hearts. And here they are in Babylon. And they go down to the river, and maybe it's that that's where they congregate. And there, when they talk about the homeland, and how it was in Jerusalem, and how it was in Israel, and how it was in the land flowing with milk and honey, when they had freedom, and God was their king, and they had the temple, and they would just weep. And it says, and we hung our harps on the poplar trees. It goes on to say, we, we couldn't sing. We were so heavy, so heartbroken. In fact, the people would say, sing to us the songs of Zion. And they said, we will not, we cannot. And if I ever forget about Jerusalem, may the skill I know as a musician, may my hand forget how to play, and may my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. Deep, deep heaviness and burden because of the rod of God bringing correction. Now, while that is really, really dark, we've got to remember, as we studied last week, that we are always being followed, and we're always being followed by goodness and mercy. You remember that? Surely, absolutely, without a doubt, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, even in the hard times, even in the difficult times, even in the timeouts. 
And Israel, Judah was in a timeout, a 70-year timeout, but God's goodness and mercy continued to follow them. You see, it was a time of correction and a time of restoration. Even while they were in captivity, there was this good news of hope. Uh, For some of you, your life verse was written to them while they were in captivity. What you never really put together is that it had a a 70-year maturation date, that it wouldn't actually come true for 70 years, but it's that word out of Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. So God is with them. So they're back in Babylon. And five years into this 70-year captivity, they're down at the rivers and they're crying and they're mourning. Israel has not only been overtaken, but now the temple, which represented their covenant with God, it represented who, who they, they were, their identity and their relationship with him. The temple has been destroyed. And now this man, Ezekiel, who was 25, is now 30. And some would even say that this happened on his 30th birthday. You can debate that, it's not that important of a detail, but can you imagine celebrating your 30th birthday in captivity, not knowing if you'll ever return home. Ezekiel chapter one, verse one says this. In my 30th year, in the fourth month of the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kebar River. So they're down at the river like they are, hanging their, their harps on the poplar trees and they're crying. The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Now, I read that and I'm like, what a cool 30th birthday present. Just have the heavens open and to see visions of God. How cool is that? Well, if you've ever read Ezekiel, it's more like, how weird is this? I mean, Ezekiel is the symbolism, the bizarre. He sees these creatures with these outstretched wings and these multi-faces on their head and and there's wheels and wheels within wheels and they're like on these these segways and they're going around and they're carrying this throne and and then there's this valley with all these bones and these bones start coming together like some kind of a zombie apocalypse and the hip bones connected to the thigh bone and the thigh bones connected to the knee bone and all this stuff is coming about. And in the midst of all of this, This isn't just some kind of a bad trip from the 60s and 70s. If if this was written in those days, you would think that that was some bad stuff they got into. This is a vision from God, and it's a vision with a message, and the message is my rod and my staff are bringing correction right now and restoration. Around chapter 34, you see that the whole whole focus begins to shift and it starts talking about a future hope that will happen. And instead of all this bizarre symbolism, now it's stuff we understand. He comes down with this picture of shepherds and sheep. And he starts off, again, with this judgment against the shepherds, the leaders, the the political, the the religious, and the the civic leaders of, of Judah, these shepherds, and he says, woe to you shepherds of my people. I mean, you've been self-centered. It's all about you. You're not serving the people. You're having the people serve you. You've ignored them. You've neglected them. And you've even been harsh to them. In verse six, it says this. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. God says, my people, I put you in charge. You are supposed to care for them and they're scattered all over and you didn't even care. And then you see this beautiful picture. It says more about the shepherd than it does the sheep. In verse 11, he writes, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, 
I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. God says, you have, you have failed, but I have not. It says more about the shepherd than the sheep. And later in verse 16, it says, I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. File this one away, because we're gonna come back to this in a few minutes. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. And not only that, but he tells about a day that's coming, a day when things would be restored, a day when life would flourish in all of its abundance, a day when the, when the, the pastures would be green again and full of nourishment, a day when the, the cooling, refreshing rains and the still waters are there again, a day when they're walking in the path of righteousness again. There will come a day, and not only will there come a day, there will come a godly leader, a shepherd to lead the people. Verse 23, he says this, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. Now there would be some good leaders that would come out of this period. As I mentioned before, Daniel was a phenomenal leader. Ezra, Queen Esther, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel. They were all great leaders. But he says there's one leader. I, I, will, I will bring one shepherd, my servant David. And, and as we talked about before, he's not talking about literally David. David died 400 years before. This is happening later. He's not bringing David back from the dead. He's talking about there will be one more, one that comes from the line of David. And as he's talking about this one shepherd, this good shepherd, he's pointing to the good shepherd. And now we leave Ezekiel, and let's fast forward 600 years later. 600 years later, it just so happens that a young virgin in the fullness of time gives birth to a child, and she gives birth to this child not in her hometown, but in Bethlehem, the town of David, where David had been a shepherd. And that birth is announced to shepherds in that town. And the birth of this one, of the line of David, in Bethlehem, announced to the shepherds, would grow up. And 30 years later, the same age Ezekiel was when he got this vision, this one, Jesus, would start his ministry. And the first thing that would be said about him by his relative, his cousin, John the Baptist, is behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he's born in this town of David, announced to the shepherds. He's referred to as the Lamb of God. And then in his ministry, he starts telling these parables about sheep and gates and shepherds. And in the midst of it, he makes some statements about himself. Some statements that were unthinkable. And in fact, for some, it was absolutely outrageous, infuriating because of what it implied. So this one who was born and his birth was announced to the shepherds, he's seen as the Lamb of God. He makes this statement about himself in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Let's stop right there. Most of us have heard that statement before, I am the good shepherd. It's one of these great statements of Jesus. But when you realize when he says this, there might be another little play on words. I am is Yahweh. 
I am that I am. And maybe he is saying, and I know he is, I am the good shepherd, but also making a fact that I am is the good shepherd. And if he's saying that he is the good shepherd, that he is I am and he is the good shepherd, then he is saying, and I am fulfilling the prophecy that was spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 34, that there would become one shepherd, the shepherd from the line of David. And if that's the case, when David wrote these words, the Lord is my shepherd, he was writing about Jesus. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, this would have been a, a troubling statement. He's talking about God and referring to him as Father. No one referred to God as Father before this. That's too casual. And to say, you know him and he knows you. Who do you think you are, the Son of God or something? And this bizarre statement about how, how he will lay down his life for the sheep, none of it makes sense. But he talks about how he knows his sheep, and he calls them by name. And he follows them and he will give them life and life in all of its fullness, this abundant life, this John 10, 10. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. And then he would go on and make an even more outlandish claim and statement. Later in John chapter 10, he would say, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Who is able to give eternal life? I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Wait a second, Jesus. Who do you think you are? I am the good shepherd, and I give abundant life, and I call my sheep by name, and I give them eternal life, and no one can take them from me. You know what that does? That says a whole lot more about the shepherd than it does the sheep. All right, push pause. Let me uh, take a, another, uh, another sharp turn here. We talk about a real uh, obvious, I don't know if it's literary, grammatical, vocabulary thing. The word sheep. The word sheep is a, is a unique word in that it's the same word with the same spelling and the same pronunciation, sheep for plural and for individual, both. Now, that, that's a little bit unique, that you have the same, same word. For other animals, it's not always that way. If you have one dog, it's a dog. If you have multiple, it's dogs. It's plural, but a different word, different spelling, different sound. All right, if you have one cow, it's a cow. If you have more, it's cows, or even cattle, a completely different word. If you have one goose, it's a goose. If you have more, it's geese. If you have one mouse, it's a mouse. If you have more, it's meese. Okay, that's Mr. Jinx from way back. I hate Mises to pieces, anybody? anybody? Okay, I'm on my own on that one. All right. If you have one, it's a, it's a mouse. If you have more, it's mice. If you have one cat, it's a cat. If you have more, it's legion. I'm sorry, that, that's about demons. All right, you have cats. But with sheep, if you have one, it's a sheep. If you have a thousand, it's sheep. Now, you say, okay, that's obvious, Bob. Good. What I want you to see is there's a theological truth behind this as well. Because when the good shepherd says, I care for my sheep, he's talking about multitudes and he's talking about one. When he says, I know my sheep by name, he's talking about multitudes and he's talking about 
one. In Matthew chapter nine, verse 36, it says, when he saw, when he, being Jesus, the good shepherd, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep, not talking about just one person, the crowds like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on the multitudes. That's why he came. God so loved the world that he gave his own son. It's the sheep. But what you see over and over again is Jesus' attention to the individual sheep. In Luke chapter 13, there's a woman who's been bent over and crippled for years. And Jesus sees that individual sheep. And remember what it says, that he will bind up those and heal them? And Jesus heals this individual sheep. He knows her by name, and he cannot imagine as the good shepherd her spending one more day in that painful condition, and he heals her, an individual sheep. Interesting little side note, and not at all insignificant. It happened to be on the Sabbath, because every individual person, every individual sheep, was more important to Jesus than some man-made rule. In the very next chapter, Luke chapter 14, Jesus sees a man and it says he has dropsy. That's a word we don't use a whole lot. I had to look it up. Edema, I didn't know what that was. I had to look it up. Severe swelling, he sees this man whose legs are swelling. If you've ever had severe swelling, you know the tightness where the skin is about ready to burst. You know the pain that the joints can't even turn. And he sees this man with dropsy, an individual man. And Jesus sees this individual sheep and he heals him on the Sabbath. Because every individual person, every sheep he knows by name is more important than man-made rules. In Luke chapter 15, the very next chapter, he's gathered a small group of sheep. And these are unsavory sheep. These are sheep that are a little dirty, sheep that are a little wayward. Sinners, tax collectors. And the Pharisees aren't at all happy about this. And it's in this context, after he helps one sheep on a Sabbath, helps another sheep on the Sabbath, is meeting with some others, that he decides to tell this familiar story in Luke chapter 15. And he says this. Jesus told him this parable. Suppose, hypothetically, one of you, not just this story, let's put it, make it personal. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Now Jesus is being gracious in his, uh, in his little story here because a good shepherd never loses sheep. What happens is sheep walk away, sheep stray away, sheep wander away. The shepherd didn't lose the sheep, the sheep is the one that, that wandered. And can we be real honest right now? I mean, no matter where you are, no matter what you're watching on, can we take a little a vote, a little poll, a little show of hands? Have you ever, or maybe I should say, if you have ever, strayed from the path a little bit, wandered away from the shepherd a little bit, gotten away from the way, the, the, the path of righteousness, gone out on your own, found yourself in a thicket, found yourself in a clearing where you shouldn't be, found yourself lost. If you have ever strayed or wandered, will you just right now, just raise your hand. I mean, I want you to physically raise your hand. Now keep it up and look around the room. If anyone does not have their hand up, they're lying. Because in Isaiah, using the same picture, Isaiah 53 says, we, like sheep, have all gone astray. Each has gone our own way. We have all wandered off. 
And Jesus says, okay, hypothetically, if one of you had a hundred sheep and one of them is lost, okay? One of them wanders off. You think you say, well, just, just wait. I mean, they'll come back, right? Isn't that what little Bo Peep said? Little Bo Peep lost her sheep. You know, didn't know where to find them. Leave them alone and they'll come back home wagging their tails behind them. That's not what sheep do. Sheep don't have built-in GPS. You never hear about carrier sheep. You hear about carrier pigeons. You never hear about sheep on the incredible journey. They can't find their way back home. He says, you understand that. You get that. You know that. He says this. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And can I just bring this home to, to you? For some of you, you know what it's like when a household pet goes missing. I mean, the kids are crying, you've got a knot in your stomach, you're making little flyers to put up on telephone poles, you're going door to door, you're looking in, in buildings and under bushes, you're out there screaming in the middle of the night, your slippers in your bathrobe, you're out looking for this pet, you understand. And he says, if you lost one, wouldn't you go out looking? And wouldn't you look until you find it? Okay, pause, that little ADD moment. When I was growing up, uh, my dad, uh, he, he played guitar, but he also played a harmonica. And there were two songs that I remember that he would play. There were more, I'm sure, but two that I remember. One was The Bells of St. Mary. The other song that he played is an old, old hymn that, as far as I know, we have never, ever sung in this church. It's about 150 years old, and the hymn that he would play on his harmonica was called The Ninety and Nine. And I want to read you some of the lyrics of this hymn. It was written 150 years ago, and it tells this story out of Luke chapter 15. It says, There were ninety and nine that safely lay in the shelter of the fold, but one was out on the hills away, far off from the gates of gold. Away on the mountains, wild and bare, away from the tender shepherd's care. Lord, thou hast here thy ninety and nine, are they not enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, this of mine has wandered away from me. And although the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. Here's a little quiz for you. Who does this say more about? This says more about the shepherd than about the sheep. And so Jesus tells this story. You have a hundred sheep. One of them is gone, of course. Will you leave everything and you will go searching until you find it? And then in verse five, he says, and when he finds it, when he finds this wayward sheep, when he finds the sheep that won't follow the shepherd, when he finds this stray sheep who's so independent and is gonna figure it all out on their own, when he finds this sheep that's lost and can't find his way home, when he finds this sheep that's injured itself, when he finds this sheep that's vulnerable, when he finds this sheep that's rebelled and, he's, and he's, he's gone off with his hardened heart, when he finds this sheep, when he finds it, what does he do? Of course, Jesus would say, when he finds it, he unleashes his anger and beats the poor beast. <laughs> that's not what Jesus said. Oh, Jesus is much wiser than that. He said this, when he finds it, he drags it home, butchers it, and has lamb chops. Now we're talking. Now we're going to have a party. Throw the feast. Kill the, kill the strayed lamb. It's not what Jesus said. Jesus, the good shepherd, says this. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders 
and goes home. Home like, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, home? Home like, because goodness and mercy has followed me and found me? And he joyfully puts the lamb on his shoulders. Not angry, not mad, not frustrated, joyful. Can this be? I mean, that's too good to be true. And it says more about the shepherd than it does the sheep. Now, now before we get too far down the partying trail there, of the joyful uh, party at home, let's take a moment and remember what it cost, the effort that was put out, the distance that was traveled, the price that was paid. That hymn that my dad used to, to blow on the harmonica. Verse three says this, but none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night the Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that was lost. Out in the desert he heard its cry. T'was sick and helpless and ready to die. Lord, whence are those blood drops all the way that marked out the mountain's track? They were shed for the one who had gone astray ere the shepherd could bring him back. Lord, whence are thy hands so rent and torn? They're pierced tonight by many a thorn that the good shepherd would travel any distance and undergo any pain to be able to find this sheep that was lost. And then he takes the sheep and he puts them on his shoulders. And remember, that's not the only thing he put on his shoulders. We quoted Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What else does the good shepherd carry on his shoulders? My sin, your sin, our guilt, our shame. The, the punishment that set us free was upon him. And then... When he was beaten and when he was whipped, he was made to carry the cross on those bruised and bloodied shoulders. You see, the good shepherd knows the physical weight of the cross. He knows the spiritual weight of our sin and our guilt and our shame. And he knows the joyful weight of his sheep on his shoulders, that he would do anything to be able to bring that sheep home. In Hebrews it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the, here it is again, the joy, the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Say it with me if you can, this says more about the shepherd than it does about the sheep. And it's his love for us and his willingness to sacrifice for us to carry the weight of the cross 
to carry the weight of our sin, our guilt, our shame, to carry our burden and our punishment so that he could carry us. I I love this picture of Jesus carrying the lamb, having been off wandering for so long, who knows how far he had to go. And he doesn't just ask the sheep to follow him home, he carries him back home. And it's for the joy set before him. How about this one? That there's a sense of joy. That which is lost is now found. The sheep that I would do anything for, I have back in my embrace, as it says in Isaiah 40, he carries it close to his heart. I want you to write these words down if you're taking notes, and they're hard to believe. But the words are this. I am the shepherd's joy. I am the shepherd's joy. That it was for me, the joy set before him, that he endured the cross scorning its shame. That I was the lamb that he joyfully put on his shoulders and carried back home. When we begin to understand that and grasp that and recognize that that says a whole lot more about the shepherd than it does the sheep, then it dwells within us, it, 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 it immerses from within us, not a sense of entitlement, but of gratitude, not of pride, but of humility, not of self-centeredness, but of, of worship, not of demanding anything from our good shepherd, but surrendering and submitting. You see, old man Jacob, he got it. He understood. David got it. Isaiah understood it. Ezekiel knew it. Jesus talked about it. And John the Revelator got it. And it's for us as well. That when we understand this truth, that our lives will be transformed by the love of the good shepherd. Say this with me if you can. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to tell you, that says a whole lot more about the shepherd than the sheep.